Good morning. Good to be back with all of you. Welcome to those joining at Saratoga Half Moon Online and, of course, here in Latham. So i got a question to ask you. Have you ever almost burnt down your house? I did. I was 13 years old, home alone, problem number one. My mom ran to, to do some errands, and so I had a couple of my buddies from the neighborhood over, Jerry and Derek. On the side of our house were a row of pine trees, small little bushes. And it was a very dry year that year. And so these bushes were very, very dry. In fact, some of them were brown. And everything went south when out of my pocket I pull out a book of matches. And I began to light the match. And I flung them towards those dry bushes. Now, no one said I was a smart kid. But you understand... I was letting Jerry and Derek know, I'm a risk taker, okay? I'm a risk taker. I got everything under control. I take the second match, public service announcement, don't play with matches, kids, okay? I'm here to tell you. And I fling that match, and the lip match goes right in the center of that bush, right there on the corner of the house, and i never seen anything ignite in flames so quickly. But that wasn't the worst of it. The worst was these bushes were planted very close to one another, and so that one lit the one behind it on fire, and that one, the one next to it on fire, you get the point. Within moments, the entire row of bushes were engulfed in flames. And I'm thinking, the side of the house is going up. Now I am panicking. I run to the back of the house, and I grab the hose. I crank the hose, and as I'm running back around, as I hit that corner, all I see is Derek and Jerry on their bikes. They're leaving me. Can you imagine this? I'm like, what, what good friends I have. And now I just start drenching those bushes. And that's when I begin to think, I think I got this under control. I think I'm going to get away with this. I mean, you know, the bushes before were brown. Now, what should I say? They're crispy, okay? They're crispy. But I'm, 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 I'm spraying them. But all hope evaporated, you see, because the moment that water hit those bushes, it caused this white, thick cloud of smoke to emerge, and it went as high as the eye could see. To my 13-year-old mind, it looked like a mushroom cloud from an atomic bomb right there over my house. And I'm like, you got to be kidding. Two blocks to the left, police station. Three blocks to the right, fire station. And I hear sirens coming from both directions. What, what do you think I did? I ran and hid in the basement. <laughs> Such a coward. That's what I did. I was so scared. And then I hear the sirens. They stop in front of the house. Now, I'm not afraid so much about the fire. I really do think I got that under control. I'm really afraid of what my mama is going to do to me. And shortly after the firefighters arrived, my mom's going in. Could you imagine what she's thinking? Oh, my goodness. What did Pat do, you know? Well, the firefighters are telling her everything's fine. The fire is actually out. It's just smoke. It should evaporate within, you know, 30 minutes. Everything will be fine. No damage to the house. In other words, I did a good job putting the flames out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's, that's, that's very kind of all of you. And then I hear the door opening to the basement. It's my mom. I remember where I was sitting on the far right side of the couch in our small little finished basement, trying to explain what I did and what happened, you know. But she could clearly see I was visibly shaking by the whole ordeal. 
And she just walked towards me and she sat next to me and she put her arm around me and she said, could have been worse, but everything is going to be fine. Don't worry about it. I said, where's my mom? Who is this woman? (laughs) You see, she didn't yell at me. She didn't berate me because she knew I knew how stupid I was. There is a verse in the Bible. Love covers a multitude of sins. I have another one. Grace covers a multitude of stupid sins. And my mom that day just gave me grace. And here I am almost 40 years later, and I could vividly remember the grace and the kindness that my mother showed me on that day. Because when you receive grace, it really does impact the heart. And as we're continuing our series on God's amazing grace, last week I asked a question. After we looked at those powerful gospel stories that gave you and I a picture of what God's grace looks like, I asked the question, has God's grace captured your heart? Is it impacting your life? Now, you may ask, how do I know if it is? And I think one way to gauge it is whether or not his grace is changing you, whether it's changing me for the better. You know, the Apostle Paul would often talk about change in the life of a believer. And he would say things like in 2 Corinthians 5, the old you is gone, the new you is here. Change. He would say in Romans 8, do not live by the flesh, but rather live by the spirit. It's about change. Romans 12, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, change is expected in the life of a grace-filled believer. In fact, Jesus would say, if change is not happening, something is wrong. He would say that in a lot of different places in the Gospels. But I want us to look at just one story that drives home that biblical truth. And it's out of Matthew 18, known as the parable of the ungrateful servant. Now, before Jesus gives the parable, the apostle Peter asks Jesus a question. And at the heart, it is a question around when is good good enough for you? And he's he's asking it within the context of forgiveness. Verse 21, look at it with me. Peter asks Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Is seven times enough? And what Peter did there is he took the Jewish tradition of you forgive three times, he doubled it, added one for good measure. So he's thinking Jesus is going to be impressed. In fact, I'm thinking Jesus may be impressed. I mean, seven times is a lot. And I'm thinking maybe, maybe Jesus will be, wow, Peter, seven times. That's incredible. Maybe you ought to aim a little lower. Five, five is fine. But you know, Peter, I know you're a sinner. You fall short. Two times is good. Peter, you got issues? One. But he doesn't do that, right? What does he say in response? Verse 22, he says, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. In other words, grace receivers ought to forgive a lot. And what Jesus is doing here is he is elevating the standard because of the grace that he gives to you and to me. And he's saying to Peter, and he is saying to the disciples, 
And he's saying to you and I as believers, don't ask when is good good enough. Just be good. Just forgive. And certainly don't keep track of all the times you're doing good like a checklist. No, just be good. Just forgive. Because in Christ, we're to be different. Why? Because he empowers us to be different. With that as the backdrop, Jesus then goes into this parable of the ungrateful servant. Now, notice who the audience is. The audience is Peter. It's the disciples. It's believers. And it's about a king who is settling accounts. And he sees that someone owes him a lot of money, 10,000 bags of gold. He has the servant called into his quarters. And he said, you owe me a lot of money. Pay up. Servant said, I'm sorry, I don't have the money. King says, okay, then we're going to sell you and your wife and your children into slavery, and we're going to sell everything you own so you can begin to pay off this debt. The servant falls to his knees, pleads for mercy. Be patient with me, and I will pay you back everything. But the king did not give him any time. He did something much better. Do you remember what he did? He canceled the debt in its entirety. He had pity on the man, and he let him go. And that's the first part of the parable. You see, we are the servant in this parable, in the first part. And we too have incurred an incredible debt. Not a financial, but a sin debt. And when we plead for mercy from the king who is God, God is so gracious to forgive us our sin debt. It's the unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor of God to those who humbly admit, I've got a sin problem and I need grace. It's what we talked all about last week. But this parable isn't over. And the one who was forgiven a lot is now leaving the king's quarters. And Jesus says, as he is, he runs into somebody that owes him a hundred silver coins, pennies by way of comparison. The man who was forgiven a lot, Jesus said, grabs that man, chokes him, and demands payment. And the one that owed him the coins does exactly what he did to the king. He pleads for mercy. He falls to his knees, says the same words, be patient with me, and I will pay you back everything. And every one of us, when we hear this, immediately assumes he'll give him mercy, given the incredible mercy the king gave him. But to everyone's shock, he had zero mercy. He gave him zero grace. And he had the man thrown in jail. Well, word gets back to the king as to what just happened, and the king is angry. Verse 31, he has him called into the quarters, and this is what the king says to the ungrateful servant. You wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In other words, shouldn't you be different because of the grace that you received? To which every one of us would say yes. But because he wasn't, the king had him thrown into jail. See, there's something wrong when a grace receiver is not being changed by it. You remember last week I said, there are some people that are negatively shocked when grace is given to someone. 
And we saw the self-righteous, they were shocked when grace was given to the tax collector. And the religious leaders were shocked when grace was given to the adulterous woman. And the older brother was shocked when grace was given to the younger brother, the wayward prodigal son. And I said, grace can be so unsettling to those who don't think they need it. I'm good. And bad people ought not to get it. You remember that? Well, I believe there's even greater, greater shock when a grace receiver is not being changed by it. And that's what you see in this parable. And through the parable, Jesus is saying, when that happens, something is wrong. The Apostle Paul gives a warning to the worldly Christians of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 6.1. He says this, do not receive God's grace in vain. In other words, don't waste it. And what we see in this parable is an ungrateful servant that is wasting it. Now, we do not know why he behaves the way he does. But I'm thinking it's fair to say that he, his heart was not captured by the kindness and the grace of the king. In other words, when he was leaving the king's quarters, he was probably not thinking, what a gracious, kind, compassionate king I serve. No, he's probably thinking, what a shrewd businessman I am. I just skirted the system. I just pulled the wool over the king's eyes. I just got away with murder. I just found a loophole in his heart was not captured by the kindness and the grace of the king. Not too long ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who was telling me about, about a very close relative of his. And he said he will claim to be a Christian, but in so many words, he said he kind of abuses grace. So what do you mean by that? Well, you know, it's like a get out of jail for free card. It's like, I've got my fire insurance, thank you very much, but no change. He lives for me, myself, and I. And I think it's one of the reasons why even Christians can get a little uncomfortable when we talk about God's amazing grace because they think maybe people will use it as a license to sin. Maybe people will begin to abuse grace. But you know, when you stop and think about it, you really can't abuse grace. Because it implies that we can fool God. It implies that you can trick God, that we can sidestep God, and all of us know we cannot fool God. He knows everything about us. The shocking part is despite that, he still loves us. But the point is we can't fool him. He knows our heart. He knows our intention. He knows our motivation. He knows our very thought. And you see that throughout scriptures. You remember, remember when Jesus was interacting with the Samaritan woman at the well? It's a beautiful, beautiful story of grace. It's a beautiful picture, by the way, of how Jesus cuts through racial and cultural and societal barriers talking to the Samaritan woman. But you remember how he knew everything about her? He knew that she was married five times before and the man that she's living with now is not her husband. She never told him that. He never met her physically before, but he knew everything about her. Or how about the gospel story of those four friends that were carrying their paralyzed buddy on a mat to where Jesus was teaching. They heard he was in town. They're very excited. Maybe Jesus will heal him. 
So they carry him to where Jesus is teaching at someone's home. When they get there, as was often the case, the crowds were everywhere. I mean, the place was packed. They couldn't go through their front door. They couldn't climb through a window. They were creative. They climbed on top of the roof. They cut an opening out of the man's roof, and they lowered the paralyzed man in front of Jesus. Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralyzed man, man, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees were nearby, the religious leaders, and they heard what Jesus said, and they thought to themselves, who does he think he is? Only God can forgive. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, turns to them and says, what's easier, to forgive sins or to heal the man? And that's when the Pharisees said, oh gosh, Jesus can read our minds. Yeah. You can't fool. We can't sidestep God. Now, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 actually tackles this issue of abusing grace. And after he elevates the beauty of God's amazing grace, he asks this question, Romans 6, 1. Look at it with me. He, he asks this. What shall we say then after he showcases the beauty of grace? What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? In other words, just go sin big time so you can showcase the awesomeness of grace that it may abound. Is that how we're to respond when we receive God's grace? To which he says, no. New King James Version, God forbid, because there's something wrong if we begin to think that way. Because the person who abuses grace is not grateful. Thus, the title of the parable, the ungrateful servant. And in many ways, they're no different than the person that doesn't think they need grace. And what you see in this parable is the true heart of this ungrateful servant. And it is a heart that values himself more than the king and more than others. He values himself more than everything. And so the question remains, so what does a person who is captured by grace look like? The opposite. The opposite of what we see in this ungrateful servant. So if he values himself above everything, the one who is captured by God's grace values God above everything. And that's exactly what Jesus tells us in Matthew 13, 44. I think it's one of, if not the shortest, I'm not sure, parables in the Gospels, just one verse. It is the parable of the hidden treasure. And in this parable is a man that gives us a glimpse as to what a person who's captured by grace looks like. Look at it with me. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Jesus is the treasure. When a man finds it, so he finds Jesus, it is the good news of the gospel. It is the grace of God. He knows he's a sinner and he needs God's grace. He finds the unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor of God in Christ. Next, he buries it. He hides it again. Now, as Christians, that sounds a little weird. Because we're not supposed to hide the good news. We're supposed to share the good news, the Great Commission, to make more and better disciples. Don't look at this parable from the perspective of mission. 
Look at it from the perspective of an intimate relationship. And when you meet the love of your life and you get married, you don't want to share your spouse with another man or woman, right? You want them all to yourself because you treasure them. You value them. Think of it from that perspective. And then in his joy, we'll get back to the word joy, he went and sold all he had and he bought that field. Now, this is not saying you can buy your way into heaven. No, by grace through faith in Christ, we get that. And it's not saying that you have to sell everything you have and be a, a poor person in order to be a committed follower of Christ. That's not what this is about. It's about the heart. You will notice he sells everything not out of a heart of compulsion, not out of a heart of duty, not out of a heart of obligation, but rather out of a heart of joy. He is willing to give everything up because of how good God is. And it is a picture of a person who is captured by God's grace. I value you, Jesus, more than anything. The Apostle Paul said of himself, Philippians 3.8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth or value of knowing Christ Jesus. In other words, I embrace Christ as a treasure that is so satisfying that everything by comparison is loss. Jesus himself, Matthew 10.37 and elsewhere said, if you want to be a disciple of mine, he said, then you, you must love me more than father, mother, brother, sister, spouse, child, more than anyone. Otherwise, you're not worthy of me. By the way, when you love God that way, you will be a better father, mother, brother, sister. Okay. But the point is, the person who is captured by the grace of God experiences a change of heart. Where your passions and your priorities and your desires begin to shift from me-centered to God-centered. Where we begin to value him above everything. Now, here's the tension. You won't do that. I won't do that. Nobody is going to do that unless you are utterly and completely blown away by how good he is to you and to me. And nothing, nothing points to the goodness of God like his moment by moment, day by day, sustaining grace that he pours out to all of us in our lives. The apostle Paul put it this way, Romans 2, 4, God's kindness his kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Repentance means a change of heart and a change of mind from me-centered to God-centered. Because his kindness and his goodness, you know this, and his grace is what makes us want him. It's what makes us desire him, right? It's what makes us draw near to him. We recently got a puppy. His name is Bentley. He's a cute little guy. And my wife, Lisa, and our two daughters, Michaela and Vanessa, the three of them were taking Bentley to the trainer. And the trainer told them, if you want Bentley to obey you and come to you, always use a kind, 
pleasant, happy sounding voice. Doesn't matter what you say, but use a kind voice. If you use an angry, stern, mean sounding voice, go figure. Bentley is not common. Why? He thinks you're going to whack him. He thinks you're going to punish him. There's wisdom there. There's wisdom. How do you view God? Do you view him as a God who will whack you and punish you when you come? Or do you view him for who he is? A good, loving, grace-giving God. The reason that question is so important is because when we come to faith in Christ, and you know this, we're not going to be perfect, right? We're going to mess up. We're going to sin. And when I say the person who is captured by God's grace is a person that values Jesus above everything, understand no one on the face of the planet does that perfectly. This is not a call for perfection. It is a call for progress. It's what we ought to be striving for, right? We ought to be more mature in our faith next month than this month, next year than this year. Point is, we're going to sin. We're going to mess up a time or two. And the way you view God makes all the difference. Will he no longer love me because I knew better? Will he reject me? Will he condemn me? Or who he really is, will he love me and give grace to me? and help to restore me to be the man, the woman God has designed us to be. Your view of God makes all the difference. A.W. Tozer said, whatever comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What do you think of when you think about God? Well, the God of the Bible wants only what is best for you and for me. And through the prophet Jeremiah, he says, I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future, a good future. And when you realize how good he is, that's when we what? We draw near to him. And that's when we begin to trust him with our lives. And when we draw near to him, James 4, 8, he draws near to us. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he begins to change us. He begins to empower us and strengthen us to be the men and women he has designed us to be. Jesus said it this way, John 15, 5. He said, I am the vine, you, Christian, are the branches. When you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much Fruit. Do you remember what fruit is in the scriptures? Fruit refers to the evidence of faith. It is the good that we do empowered by the Holy Spirit. Think of Galatians 5.22. These are attributes of a person who is connected to God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control change. But remember how Jesus ended that verse? He said, apart from me, you can't do anything. In other words, no change. Remember in the beginning, I said that if there is no change happening in the life of a believer, I said, Jesus says there's something wrong. And he says that in a lot of different places in the gospel. We obviously looked at the parable. That's one place. Here's another place. John 15, 
Because what he's saying is if there is no change, it's because you're not drawing near to him and you're not drawing near to him because you're not utterly blown away by how good he is to you. It is his grace that leads us to him and he strengthens us and he empowers us to change and to live out his purpose for your life and for my life. You know, there's a verse, look at it with me, Ephesians 2.10, that really captures God's purpose for your life and mine. This is the purpose statement that God gives Christians. And the Apostle Paul, right before he gives us this purpose statement, Ephesians 2.8 and 9 The Apostle Paul says, by grace through faith in Christ you have been saved. Not by the good works you do, it's a gift so that no one can boast, right? It's the unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor of God to those who humbly admit, I've got a sin problem and I need grace. Now we're in relationship with him because we're in right standing with God through Christ, through grace, And 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 then we have this as our purpose statement. And God empowers us to live it out. And notice, it starts with the identity that our God gives us. We are God's workmanship. We are his works of art. He gives us such an incredible identity. We are referred to as children of the living God. We're referred to as ambassadors. We are referred to as his royal priests. What an incredible identity. Why does he give it to us? because he wants us living up to it. By the way, he gives us that identity, not because of anything you or I have done, but because of who we are in Christ. Notice what it says. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. What's our purpose? To do good works that have been prepared in advance for us to do. We're here to do good. The Bible tells us we're here to give, we're here to encourage, we're here to be grace givers, we're here to be patient, to be kind, to be self-controlled, to be gentle, to be courageous for the good of others, to protect, to give hope, to love. We're not saved, hear me, we're not saved By the good that we do. That's by grace through faith in Christ. But we are saved to do good works. Why? Why? Three reasons. And you know it. It's good to be reminded. Number one, when we do good, it is good for us. We are better for it because we are becoming the men and women that God has designed us to be. Number two, when we do good, we bless others. And number three, as his representatives, when we do good, he gets all the glory and the honor. You know, the ultimate purpose of the cross is that it has enabled us to make much of him. And Jesus said, let your light shine, Christians, so that the world may see the good that you do and give glory and honor 
to our God who has been so good to us. And that is what it's all about. About a month or so ago, I was speaking to a gentleman here in the lobby. He's been a Christian for about three years, and he was just pouring his heart out to me. And he said, I knew I was a sinner, and I needed God's grace. But he said, when I started in the faith, I really didn't take it seriously at all. He said, I was living a lie. And he would just give in to temptations. His lifestyle didn't align with his newfound faith. And he said, he never felt good when he'd sin. And he said, I tried to change. And I tried to change. And I tried to change, but I kept failing and failing and failing. No victory, no change lasted over a year. But he had something very good in his life. He had a couple of Christian men that were pouring into him, and they were encouraging him to read certain passages in the scriptures. And he said they all pointed to God's grace. And others' passages pointed to God's good promises that he had for my life. And it began to draw him closer to God. And he said the temptations still surfaced, and it wasn't like I had a 180-degree change, but he says, I experienced something I never experienced before. I experienced some wins. And he said, I felt so good when that happened. And then he said, I settled it in my mind. God's ways are much better than my ways. He's got a good plan for my life. I'm not giving in. And what you see there is he did two things. He renewed his mind on the truth, Romans 12, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He renewed his mind in the truth. And then he said, I'm not giving in to the temptation. And what he was experiencing is just one. He experienced more than one of the fruits of the spirit in Galatians 5.22. One is self-control. He said, Pat, it was so hard in the beginning but as I drew closer and closer and closer to God, it got easier and easier and easier. And then he said these words, and I quote, it's been about two years now since he's taken his faith seriously. He said, my life has never been better. My family has never been happier. And my God gets all the glory. And that, my friends, is a picture of what a person who is captured by God's grace looks like. And I close with 1 Corinthians 15.10. The Apostle Paul says this about himself. Now remember, the Apostle Paul went from persecutor of Christians, road to Damascus conversion, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who risked his life for the spreading of the gospel, who endured immense persecution for the sake of the gospel, who planted so many churches to give hope where there was no hope in Christ. And he said this about himself, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not, catch it, in vain. He didn't waste it. On the contrary, I worked harder. He's talking about good works. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace 
of God that, notice, he doesn't say was with me or will be with me, but the grace of God that is moment by moment, day by day with me. Let's pray. Father God, you are so, so good. And my prayer, Father, is for all of us to have a renewed sense of awe when it comes to your magnificent grace and kindness that you show to us. And my prayer, Father, to everyone who hears my voice is that we would be blown away by how good you are, and that that would lead us just a step closer to you so that you can begin to work a miracle in our lives for our good and for your ultimate glory. We pray everything in Jesus' awesome name. Amen. Amen.